The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In our last episode, I was midway through responding to an online blog which I stumbled across. In this article, a 30-something couple named Ash and Pree posted an article entitled 10 Controversial Questions About Christianity That You Wouldn't Dare Ask a Christian. Here, I continue to take up the dare and to answer the supposedly controversial questions presented using a correct biblical world and life view. Let's continue where we left off last time. Question number seven, quote, Couldn't God have just not created evil, unquote? The author expounds, saying, quote, Couldn't God have just not created evil? Or said, Adam and Eve couldn't possibly have known what they were doing was wrong because they had no knowledge of right and wrong. Plus, uh, I put curiosity in them, so it's sort of my fault that they ate from the tree of knowledge. 
If God had created everything and knew what would happen, since it's God, why didn't he just take it as a mistake on his part and moved on, unquote? Here, the author has compounded several logical fallacies which must be addressed. First, A, quote, couldn't God have just not created evil, unquote? Answer, yes, but in order to do so, it would require removing all of our free will so that the only thing we could do, the only thing we could all do, was to worship and trust God 100%. However, number one, there would be no meaningful love, trust, faith, or fellowship since mankind would only be wind-up robots acting out a single track of programming dedicated solely to serving God without any option. 2. If God did prevent all evil, then the minute that Adam and Eve sinned and opened the door to evil, God would have destroyed everyone or God would have thrown everyone immediately into hell, both of which would have been our just reward. Alternately, under God's current plan, there is the possibility for meaningful love, trust, faith, and fellowship, and eternal life for those to whom God gives the desire to have it. Thus, the attributes of God's grace, mercy, love, patience are perfectly expressed. For those who remain in sin, rebellion against God, they are separated from God, which, is, which result is death, the grave, and hell, and the attributes of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice are perfectly expressed against the ungodly. The fact that we may not like it or agree with it is immaterial. The idea that we want everyone to go to heaven regardless won't work because everyone includes the devil, the demons, and every evil serial killer who ever lived. This would destroy God's righteousness, justice, and holiness. Likewise, if everyone goes to hell, then God's mercy, love, grace, and patience are destroyed. So God's current plan is the only plan by which all of God's attributes are perfectly displayed. Question part B. Quote, Adam and Eve couldn't have possibly known what they were doing was wrong because they had no knowledge of right and wrong, unquote. Answer. Completely wrong. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God clearly commands Adam and Eve, saying, quote, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, unquote. So, yes, Adam and Eve both knew exactly what they were allowed to do and what they were prohibited from doing. There was no doubt as to the command only doubt as to trusting God's faithfulness. Question part C. Quote, Plus, I put curiosity in them, so it's sort of my fault. 
They ate from the tree of knowledge, unquote. Answer, no. God, as stated, gave them free will to choose for the aforementioned reasons, but God giving them a commodity which was necessary for meaningful fellowship does not imply that because Adam and Eve made the wrong choice, that the wrong choice was God's fault. No, the wrong choice was Adam and Eve's fault, not God's. This logic is like saying that the engineer who designed and built a road necessary for travel is to blame because despite building guardrails, posting quote-unquote no trespassing signs, and personally telling all pedestrians to not walk in the middle of the road, and one of the pedestrians who happens to be the engineer's child decides to ignore everything and walk in the road and gets killed by a car driving on the road. No, this is not the engineer's fault. This is a decision made by the pedestrian, who unfortunately is the engineer's child. Question Part D. Quote, If God had created everything and knew what would happen, since it's God, why didn't he just take it as a mistake on his part and moved on? Unquote. Answer, no, because if the God of the Bible acted like any of mankind, as you suggest, then God would be fickle. God would be unreliable and untrustworthy. If God makes mistakes, then God is not God. He's a man. And if God is a man, then he can do nothing for anyone because he's just a man. In order for God to be God, God must act and behave in accordance to his nature, his attributes, not man's. More importantly, God does know everything and does know what will happen. But this is not limited to the fall. The fall is only part of what God knows. He also knows and has planned redemption and restoration for his elect and for his glory. Do you also want God to consider these plans as a mistake and move on? Or would you perhaps prefer that he be consistent and by his grace save some according to his mercy and love from the hell that we have earned? The conclusion is that while many, including this author, would like to imagine that they are more gracious, more loving, more righteous, more holy, more merciful, uh, more than just God, they are not. Only God knows the heart and only God can be God. Question number eight, quote, the unreachable corners, unquote. The author continues and explains, quote, if Jesus is the only path to salvation, 
Why put humans on the far corners of the earth where they have zero possibility of hearing about Jesus? Or do you believe that those people go to some sort of limbo while they await an opportunity to be judged, unquote? Answer. Can we recall that the Bible makes it clear that all of these quote-unquote unreachable corners originated from Adam and Eve and a common family who very much knew the existence of God as well as his plan for an eventual redeemer as per his promise and prophecy in Genesis chapter 3? Further, from God's perspective, not man, God, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, says that God has written what be be known of God manifestly in mankind. Further, the invisible things of God are clearly seen by mankind, including his eternal power and Godhead. As a result, God declares that mankind, from his perspective, is without excuse and will be judged on this basis alone if that's all there is. This, in fact, is the greatest proof that there is a God because everywhere and in every quote-unquote unreachable corner, in every culture, people are looking to some type of faith or religion to deal with the afterlife, with existence, or for meaning. It's universal. Even the atheist and agnostic, although they will deny it, use a series of assumptions and beliefs about the world and their lives when they're lived out, according to these assumptions and beliefs, rise to the level of faith, which become a type of religion. Now, yes, it's preferable that people hear about Jesus. But let's ask, did Abraham hear the name Jesus? Did Isaac, Jacob, etc.? Did any of them hear or repeat the Roman road verses and repeat a formulaic confession of Christ? Uh, did any of them receive a formal baptism in an approved church? No. We are told that God imputed righteousness to Abraham because of Abraham's trust and belief in God who spoke to him and instructed and promised him certain things, many of which he did not receive in his lifetime. And God reveals in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, that he, God, is not ashamed to be called their God on that basis. So it is possible, and there's nothing preventing God from speaking directly to anyone, even in the quote-unquote unreachable corners, and revealing himself and or his son to them. And further, if like Abraham, they exercise belief and faith in God, then God can impute righteousness to them in the same manner. It is ultimately God who judges the heart and not man.
Question number nine, quote, denominational delight, unquote. Here, the author explains by saying, quote, okay, I feel this is offensive to say out loud, but how is it possible you say you're a very devout Christian, but when I say which denomination you follow, you have no idea? Isn't that like uh, on the building or something? Unquote. The author continues saying, quote, The complexity of Christian denominations can be bewildering. This question humorously highlights the challenge of navigating the diverse denominational landscape while emphasizing that faith goes beyond the label on the building. Unquote. Answer. You know, I'm not sure who the author is conversing with, but anyone who is actually awake and paying attention, and certainly anyone who is quote-unquote devout, knows what the denomination of the church is that they are attending. There may be some who are new, or some who are, for whatever reason, embarrassed, but unless you are feeling guilty, you do know. So, I would question the reality of the author's claim or the reality of the subject being a quote-unquote Christian or minimally their stat status as being quote-unquote devout. Now, this being said, it is important to understand that a Christian, by definition, is a follower of Jesus the Christ, not a follower, hopefully, of a mere man or a denomination any denomination. The biblical directive is that, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, true Christians should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We should strive in a Berean manner to seek out and attend a church where the totality and the sufficiency of God's word is preached and taught in a systematic verse-by-verse -verse manner and that the Lordship of Christ is applied in every area of, of our life, and that a biblical world and life view is lived out, and that biblical accountability is maintained with biblical love, and comfort is exhibited for the afflicted, and the comforted are challenged and afflicted by loving and truthful presentation of the reality of sin and God's holiness." If you can find this, then you have a church home. If not, walk out and find a church that does. Question number 10. Quote, when did the words of the Bible become a la carte? Unquote? The author then goes on to provide an example saying, quote, let's ignore divorce, eating pork, and loving the neighbor. But Let's persecute people who have abortions or are gay because the Bible says that's not okay, unquote. Well, here, whether intentionally or not, the author creates yet another straw man logical fallacy. Essentially, what she is saying is either some are being selective about the Bible and are hypocritical, or the Bible has contradictions. But neither are true. <clears throat> the Bible has never been quote-unquote a la carte, but 
it does have progressive revelation from God. Now, you may ask, what does this mean and how does it resolve the above issues? Simple. Let's recall that God's desire and perfect pleasure on both ends of the Bible were and are for his children to have fellowship with him via a relationship of covering grace held by faith and trust in God's finished work. We see this in the Garden of Eden as God creates Adam and Eve and declares them to be good, to be very good, because they are trusting and exercising faith in God and are thus covered by God's likeness given freely by God. It is not until Adam and Eve choose to abandon God's covering grace and attempt to be like God via their own knowledge of good and evil that their eyes are opened by that knowledge and they see their own shameful condition of nakedness no longer being clothed by God's imputed grace. From Genesis 3 until Jesus' death and resurrection, the entire Bible is an exercise in God's progressively providing to his people the knowledge of good and evil via his Ten Commandments, statutes, ordinances, rules, and regulations. But make no mistake, according to God's revelation to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, the law is a schoolmaster given by God to lead his people to Christ. Now, let's be clear. The laws that God gave to his people essentially codify various aspects of God's law in the Bible, which have been identified as one, the moral or sacred law, two, the ceremonial law, and three, the civil or judicial law. Insofar as the quote-unquote when question goes, as to supposedly when did this a la carte begin, the understanding of the trifold division of the law goes back to John Calvin. It is clearly articulated in the 1689 Baptist Confession. It is articulated by Thomas Aquinas in 1270 AD. In AD 400, St. Augustine of Hippo gave a twofold division of the law. And in the mid-2nd century, Justin Martyr suggested a threefold division of the law. Now, lest we think that this theory is limited to Christianity, the mid-20th century Jewish writer Boaz Cohen notes that the divine law consists of ceremonialism, jurisprudence, and ethics, and finds this threefold division of the law. What we do know, biblically, is this. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, quote, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, unquote. This being said, it is important to recognize that Jesus is God. So, the reason that any true Christian can know that we are completely justified and seen as righteous before God is that by grace, through faith, in Jesus' imputed finished work applied to our lives, God sees Christ in us in whom he is well pleased. 
So, because God is 100% morally perfect, then because Jesus, who is the full representation of God, dwells in us, that moral perfection of God shines forth in Christ. But the moral aspects of God never change because God cannot change. However, the ceremonial aspects of the law as in, are intended as types and shadows pointing to the substance which is Christ. Once we have the substance who is Christ, we no longer require the type or the shadow. The same is true of the civil and or judicial law. Both the ceremonial and civil laws are fulfilled by Christ, and if Christ truly abides in us, then his nature will conform our hearts and minds progressively, along with his moral character, to be conformed into the fullness and likeness of Christ. So, let's examine the author's examples. She says, quote, Let's ignore divorce, eating pork, and loving the neighbor. But let's persecute people who have abortions or are gay because the Bible says that's not okay, unquote. Firstly, no child of God who truly has Christ in their life is ignoring divorce. If so be we have the mind of Christ, we abhor divorce. We abhor division and strife. We seek to be reconciled where, because of sin, there is separation. Christ gives us a desire to be unified and for husbands and wives to love one another as Christ loves the church. Why? Because marriage is a creation ordinance given by God between one man and one woman as a moral obligation and as a type representing the bond between Christ and his church. People can and do sin in this respect, but the law of divorce does not change because it's a moral law of God. Now, eating pork and other dietary laws are ceremonial laws. These laws were given for reasons of hygiene and health, as well as to draw distinction and separation between God's people and the world. However, the New Testament reveals that Christ fulfilled these laws and that because of his finished work in our hearts, Christ is the force by which God's grace provides separation and distinction from the world and we have our consciences sprinkled clean via his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, how about the quote-unquote persecuting people who have abortions who are, or who are gay, unquote? Well, there may be people who persecute other people, and there are no doubt people who feel persecuted. However, the biblical Christian is not motivated by persecution, but rather by a biblical, holy love for the lost. We don't persecute anyone. We preach, teach, and advocate acknowledgement and repentance of sin and rebellion, whatever and wherever it is, whether in ourselves or in others. This is what we are commanded to do in humility and love. 
It is admittedly not always perfect, but this too is sin which requires repentance. Mind you, we do not need to be perfect in order to follow this command. We simply need to be sincere and honest with ourselves and others. So, the bottom line is that with regard to abortion, God's Word makes it clear that God is the author of all life and that He creates and recognizes that life inside the womb at conception. The intentional taking of any life is forbidden by God under His moral law via the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not murder. Thus, any killing of a human baby in the womb at any time other than when the mother's life is literally endangered by continued pregnancy is a sin. Okay, how about the, quote, persecuting people who are gay, end quote? Well, again, marriage and sexual relationships are both issues which are repeatedly addressed both in the Old and New Testament under God's moral law. They do not change because God and his moral attributes, which the moral law reflects, do not change. Contrary to popular and secular notions, the Bible is not affected by cultural consensus. God's word is a revelation outside of time wherein the message regarding God's nature and character, salvation and sanctification, never changes. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 make it crystal clear regarding the subject. Quote, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Unquote. All these things are defined by God as sin. God can forgive sin, but it must be repented of, which means to turn away from and forsake it. To refuse to do so is rebellion. One cannot be a child of God and at the same time be in rebellion. So, yes, the Bible says it is not okay to do a lot of things, including, quote-unquote, persecuting anyone. But let's be honest. When we use the word, quote-unquote, persecution, we are talking about a worldly, sinful, fleshly attack on someone based upon personal animus, hatred, or envy. That is wrong. At the same time, Christians are instructed and commanded to be salt and light, to exercise biblical judgment and discernment upon ourselves and others. We are commanded to lovingly call out sin wherever it is and to seek repentance and restoration. And this is not only, quote-unquote, okay, it is not only good, but it is directed and commanded according to God's word. 
The problem is that we live in a world now where following biblical directives and speaking the truth is labeled as hate and prejudice. We redefine terms, legislate, and make rules that effectively fence off sin and rebellion and make it a moral or legal crime to follow biblical directives and speak the truth. Consequently, people can redefine proclaiming truth as quote-unquote persecution. So, to be succinct, the question and answer has not changed. We still say, as did Jesus' apostles when imprisoned, beaten, threatened, and ordered by authorities not to preach in the name and truth of Jesus, quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. In conclusion, in each case, with each question, the correct answer, as stated, boils down to which worldview we begin with. Whenever we make man, man's opinions, feelings, consensus, secular and or humanistic philosophy, the ultimate authority, then we will have problems with reconciling the Bible and God's word as valid. It is only when, by God's grace, that we submit to God and God's word as the ultimate authority and starting point that we can build a correct world and life view. Either we are in obedience to God by virtue of a relationship via faith and trust in Christ as Lord, God, and Savior, or we are in rebellion against God and doing what is right in our own eyes. This concludes this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah.